You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, where we're dedicated to exploring the peripheries of world literature and unearthing neglected texts from outside the mainstream canon. It started with a minor, seemingly insignificant incident that was decidedly private in nature. One beautiful November evening, on the corner of Rue Vivienne and Boulevard Montmartre, Jeanette informed Pierre that she would most definitely be requiring a pair of evening slippers. They walked slowly, arm in arm, intermingling with that random and unsynchronized throng of extras cast every evening by Europe's rickety film projector onto the screen of Paris's boulevards. Pierre was gloomy and withdrawn. He had good reason. That very morning, the foreman, measuring the hall of the factory with gutta-perka steps, had stopped suddenly before his machine, and, his eyes fixed somewhere just above Pierre's shoulder, told him to pack his tools. That was the opening passage of Bruno Jaszczynski's I Burn Paris, which was published in 1928. The book is translated by Soren Gauger and is published by Twisted Spoon Press. Jaszczynski's novel upset the authorities enough to have him expelled from France upon its publication. The story concerns a plague that breaks out in Paris, which exposes the worst tendencies of the city's inhabitants. As the death toll rises, the city breaks down and groups begin to isolate themselves according to ethnicity, nationality and ideology. In today's political climate, the book is perhaps more relevant than ever and serves as a stark warning about the perils of isolationism. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this unique and controversial text. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode seven of Shirts Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing, Rob? Yeah, really good, thanks. Back after your absence. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very nice to be back. Very nice to be reading again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're talking today about Bruno Jaszczynski's I Burn Paris. Uh, how did you feel about reading this one, Rob? This was your choice as well. Uh, so yeah, it was recommended to me by my girlfriend, and I didn't know anything about the book before I started. Then I then I kind of read a, a brief synopsis about it basically being about this, this plague that turns Paris into this very strange microcosm in which various groups turn in on themselves. But I don't really think that does... Well, I mean, yeah, that is the plot of the book in the long run, but there's so much going on. Again, say there's an awful lot about so many of the books that we, that we read together, but it is a really weird one, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, stylistically and in terms of plot and the whole lot. I enjoyed it a lot. There was there was a point in the middle where I sort of went off it a little bit, but by the end I was really gripped. I thought it was a page-turner at points. Sometimes I feel it's a page-turner for the wrong reasons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Skip to the there end. Are, there are sloppy moments in the book, I think. Uh, yeah, no, I would, I would definitely agree with that. We need to turn the pages pretty quickly. But no, I, I I really enjoyed it on the whole. Actually, I'd I'd wanted to read this book for quite a long time, ever since I read Marcy Shaw's book Caviar and Ashes, which is wonderful sort of group biography of a sort of circle of futurist poets, and I really recommend that. And I heard about it, heard about this book from her. It's a very curious one. I think structurally, it's one of the most peculiar novels I've I've read. It feels very fragmented yeah it has a certain manic 
energy to it, almost as though it were being written like under duress or something. I don't know if you felt that, Rob, the sort of fev- feverish quality. I mean, I think you, you mentioned this to me and you said that it really felt like it hadn't been planned at all. And that is really the... <laughs> it feels like, you know, he's picked up bits of storyline and, and run with them as fast as he can. And then when they've served their purpose, drops them and moves to the next bit. And it feels, I don't know, perhaps intuitive, but whether it always works is another question. Because of this constant changing in style, you're sort of required as a reader to readjust every every 50 pages or so to a, to a new style, or at least a shift in in tone. You know, I wouldn't go as far as to call it polystylism or anything like that. But it's really varied, isn't it? You, you know, you have this kaleidoscopic modernist style at the beginning, and then almost parodies of the plotting of 19th century Russian novels. And then sections that feel like sort of unreconstructed passages of the Communist Manifesto or something. And we're never really allowed to settle into the narrative, perhaps, in quite an interesting way. It's sort of quite abrasive as a read. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really felt that something very strange happens where the style completely reflects the character which I suppose is really quite sophisticated in some ways, but it does does make it quite difficult to read and can be quite off-putting when you jump from one section to another and they're uh, very discordant. But, I mean, when it works, it's, um, it's perhaps one of the most effective things that this, this novel does. Yeah, so I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about Bruno Yashensky's uh, life. I've relied quite heavily on a number of sources for this information, but um, one particular book, Nina Kolesnikov's Bruno Yashensky, his evolution from futurism to socialist realism, which is really interesting actually and covers a lot of his prose and poetry and there's quite a long section on this, this book as well on Ibern Paris. But yeah, so he's born in, in 1901 and his his real name is Viktor Zuzman not Bruno Yashensky, he only adopts that name in, in 1920, I believe. But yeah, he's born in quite a small village called Klimantov uh, in south-central Poland. His father's a, a doctor and an assimilated Jew who converts to Lutheran Protestantism in order to marry Yashensky's mother, who's a member of the Schlachta, the Polish nobility. But he attends school in Warsaw and later in his teens studies at a Polish school in Moscow uh, where he spends the war years and is a witness to the to the 1917 revolution. Uh, it's also in Moscow that he becomes acquainted with futurism through the works of uh, the Russian poet Igor Severyanin, the leader of a group called the Ego Futurists, which I quite like that that name. <laughs> Have you heard that name before, Rob? No, no, I haven't. That's great. Yes, but also becomes acquainted with Vladimir Mayakovsky's poetry as well you you're familiar with him aren't you Rob I seem to recall you even reading his diaries at one point yeah I think yeah I did I did read some of the diaries and yeah the the the, certainly the first chapter of this or the first section of this book felt like there was yeah quite a strong Mayakovsky influence oh really in what way the way the language reflects you know this very modern industrial surrounding the way it chops and and kind of crashes through in this this very particularly mechanical rhythm to me, felt very similar. When it when it works, it's it's fantastic. But at points, I found that Yashensky begins to fall back on sort of like cliched imagery and certain metaphors that don't always work. But the the rhythm of it is very compelling. I mean, I'm not too familiar with with Mayakovsky's work, but I know that he was an enormous influence on the Polish futurists, and that that many of them wrote works almost in direct imitation of his his style so it doesn't doesn't surprise me that you can see that influence there not that much is known about this early period in in moscow and interestingly he doesn't make any mention of it at all in his autobiography but yeah he comes back to poland in in 1918 to attend the jagiellonian university in krakow where he studies philosophy and he sets up a futurist club called Katarynka, with a couple of fellow poets, Stanisław Młodzieniec and Tetos Trzewski. And they set it up to, in order to sort of shake up the old-fashioned literary establishment in Krakow. And apparently the club is the sort of scene of all these turbulent 
poetry readings and discussions that often lead to public scandal. You know, and just as a sort of side note, Rob, I love I love this stuff. You know, in the early 20th century, you often get descriptions of avant-garde poetry readings or, you know, the performance of a new string quartet causing a riot or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a... I don't know. I feel like there must have been a very, very different mentality or sensibility, the idea that that could uh, be incited to riot by by the reading for poetry that your your moral or your cultural views are so so strongly held that you could um take to the streets or prompted to violence by <laughs> by poetry reading but yeah there is there is something amazing there it's remarkable isn't it it's it's sort of something i can't even i can't really imagine now just that any form of art would be taken quite as seriously it just doesn't seem to have the same to occupy the same sort of position in in the public consciousness you know on that note there was something quite interesting that i hadn't thought of at all and actually i guess i didn't i didn't know the biographical details so well but there is not really any of this that crops up in the book i'm trying to think off the top of my head but there's very little the only thing i can think of which i really noticed reading it is the frequent mentions of jazz and where exactly that sits whether that's something very American. I don't know, like much of the book, it seems like Yasinski isn't really sure about its position, whether it's something American and capitalist, but then also something very, very free, breaking out of constraints of like traditional European music. Spread of the Plague does seem very linked at points with this spread of jazz and, and dancing. It does sort of play a part in other modernist literature that I can think of. There's one in one thing I'm thinking of in particular that I was planning actually for an episode of Sherd's podcast, John Rodker's Adolf nineteen twenty, which sort of culminates in a in a jazz club and the style starts to kind of mimic the rhythms of, of jazz and so on. There's, it also makes me think of the the role of jazz in Under the Volcano and other other bits of Malcolm Lowry's writing. Yeah, maybe maybe it's the closest thing to having some cultural thing whether it's poetry or or music somehow like drive people mad or or be completely intoxicating it feels very much obviously in his work it's very much linked to this like extreme intoxication of drunkenness but the two things seem to go hand in hand at points the intoxication that you feel in Lowry's books feels very similar to this very strange plague like the early days of of the plague in paris here becoming this kind of no holds barred you know anything goes because people sort of feel like they're going to die and there's this like strange dancing at times it becomes very unclear whether people are almost dancing themselves to death or if they're uh if they're dying of the plague and i quite like that in terms of how yeah what what jazz did in the in the 20s and 30s when i think of jazz i sort of retroactively imagining like i don't know jazz from the 60s back into back into the to the 20s or something you know this sort of free free jazz rather than this popular dance music but still with that frenzied energy you know which i suppose really links with the with the style in this in this novel but i guess for for groups of people that previously will have heard orchestral music or classical music in some way and then folk music uh something like jazz coming along is is so so different and you can understand why it would have had this sort of impact or why people would have seen it as this this very very strange uh, cultural product that perhaps was morally dubious or uh, i don't know although that's definitely tinted with quite a large dose of racism but um... you know mentioning that john john rodker book sort of strange almost forgotten modernist text one of the reasons why i'm quite hesitant to do it is because it's it's sort of extremely racist at points and with that sort of tinge of bullish elitism that you often get in in modernism which is kind of absent from from Yashensky's book I think I I would absolutely agree yeah particularly when it goes to the the Chinese section I was sort of ready I was like here we go there's going to be some <laughs> some hideous racism in here but it just doesn't come yeah I mean it feels I feel like every character people that it feels like naturally he um, sympathises with and then certainly characters he doesn't. Even characters in the book who are ostensibly extremely anti-Semitic. And it's very interesting. I didn't know about his father being naturalised Jew, but uh, 
especially for the time, he feels very sympathetic to this Jewish plight. But even the character who's very anti-Semitic, he, no, no one's kind of put up as a, a caricature. They're given very obvious kind of like emotional turmoil, or um, they're they're given a real fleshed-out emotional life, which. I don't know, yeah, is is the thing for me, uh, perhaps like one of the strongest bits of the book. And that also uh, applies just equally to the Chinese character. And the the points in China read quite quite realistically, I thought. It doesn't feel like it descends into, yeah, cliche or, or stereotype. It felt, I mean, I've never been to China, so I don't know for sure, but it felt relatively convincing. There are elements of it that aren't really to do with the exploration of Chinese identity in that in that section that do feel a bit hackneyed but uh no it it does it does feel like um quite a considered portrait and um that strikes me as particularly rare for this for this period for a white european author already you've mentioned his father being a naturalized jew and it's very interesting to know what other things could have led to this very sympathetic writing style just to go back to this um futurist club that was set up to give you a sort of flavor of what some of these events could be like in yashensky's preface to his first well i guess it's novella nogi isolde morgan refers to a reading in 1921 in zakopana where he apparently read what he considered to be his best poems only to have the audience throw a volley of stones at him in which he (laughs) and he wrote about it that uh in 1921, he had no aspirations to be stoned to death. Uh, so they, <laughs> I think they were quite extreme events. But can I stop you there very quickly? Because I read yeah. about this too. Yeah. And it, the first thing that made me think was, where, where did the stones come from? Yeah, I, th- I was thinking that as well. <laughs> I thought, could this be like bluster, uh, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Or whether yeah. they you know, they knew how bad the poetry was in advance and brought their own stones. Maybe. Yeah, so this, this group of futurist poets in, in Krakow makes makes connections with the Warsaw futurists whose members include Alexander Vat, who's quite famous for a for a book called My Century, which is uh, interviews of him by uh Miłosz. Uh, which sort of serve as a history of this of this entire period, this, the literary scene here. It's a really interesting book. But yeah, so in 1921, he publishes his first collection of poetry, Butonierca, uh, a boot in a buttonhole. And I thought it might be quite nice to to hear a little bit of Jasinski's poetry in in Polish. So I'll, I'll include a little excerpt of this of his poem, Marsh, in which you can really hear the the sort of staccato mechanical rhythms of his brand of of futurism and and maybe that might mirror what you were saying about Mayakovsky's work. Tratata tam tam tratata tam tam tutaj i tu i tu i tam 1 7 404 panie na głowach mają rajery damy damy tyle tych dam tam, ta, to tu, to tu, to tam, w willi, nad morzem, płacze skriabin, obcas karabin, obcas karabin, ludzie, 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 do bram, tratata tam, tratata tam, 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 dalej, za kantem, pani, biała, z pękiem chryzantem, pani, biała, czekała, w oknie, kwiat, spadł, kapnie, na stopnie, szli, szli, rzędem, po rzędzie, tam i tam, i dalej, i wszędzie, młodzi, zdrowi, silni jak byki, wozy, wiozły, w kozły, koszyki, w tłumie, dziewczyna, uliczna, stała, szybko, podbiegła, pocałowała. Yeah, I thought I'd also just read a little passage from Marcy Shaw's book, Caviar and Ashes, that gives a really great image of the kind of figure that was cut by Jasinski during this period. Um, He was the most elegant and the most pointed cultivator of dandyism, with his top hat and gaunt figure cloaked in black. To some he seemed very self-controlled, closed unto himself, as though he had inside him some obsessive thought that he chose not to share with anyone. Such a demeanour could be off-putting, but also seductive. It did not escape Jarosław Iwaszkiewicz that schoolgirls went crazy when they saw Jasinski, and he drew the attention of his male classmates as well. Iwaszkiewicz goes on, I would see him almost every day 
in front of the main building with a monocle on his eye. His huge tie suggested the Romantic era, bygone 19th century elegance, and this almost theatrical accessory seemed all the more flagrant on a writer who, in all other respects, had broken with the past and tradition. And if you have a chance to look at any pictures of Yashensky, you can you can really see this sort of austere dandyism. Uh, you were looking at his picture a moment ago, Rob, right? Yeah, the the gaunt dandy is certainly a good description. <laughs> yeah, so there's also a period that he's, he spends in Lvov, but after this, and I suppose of, which is of most interest to us, is Yashensky's period in Paris. So he moves to Paris with his wife in 1925 and works as a journalist for a Polish newspaper, Vieknova, in this that book of interviews with Alexander Vat, uh, Mój Wiek, My Century, Vat describes Yashensky's Paris years. I'll just read this as well. He left for Paris with his wife in 1925. His father-in-law, a wealthy merchant in Lvov, had given them some money, but they still had to rough it in Paris. He was very much in bad straits. And because we saw each other every day, I knew that it was poverty that turned him into a communist. He had, however, already gone through a certain evolution, for not very much remained of the arch snob with the monocle and the curl on his forehead, always on the prowl and surrounded by young women, as he had been in Warsaw and Krakow. In Lvov, he became friendly with the theatrical troupe that was leaning towards communism, and he was already transformed. It was there when I talked with him in Paris, but his conversion to communism was sealed in connection with the scandal over I Burn Paris, when the French authorities expelled him for that book, which caused a great outcry. I was there when he got the idea for I Burn Paris, which came from his insufficient knowledge of French. This is exactly what happened. One day Yashensky came home. I was there for lunch, and he said with incredible passion and fury that he had seen Morin's new book, Je Brûle Moscow, I Burn Moscow, on display in a bookstore. He was enraged and kept striding around the apartment, swearing, unable to get a hold of himself. And at this point, Tosrov Miwash notes that the, the verb brûler uh, means not only to burn, but to pass quickly through. It was a misinterpretation on Yashensky's part, apparently, of the title of Moran's book. That goes on. Three or four le- days later, he told me the entire plot of the novel he was going to write, I Burn Paris which uh, puts our idea that he didn't make any plans for this out the window, Rob, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So he goes on to say, that's how great works of literature come about sometimes. He was expelled from France in 1929 for Eyeburn, Paris. From Paris, he went straight to Leningrad by ship. I've seen a photograph, a great triumphal arch in Leningrad, enormous crowds. Pierre was too exhausted to wander further on. Shyly, meekly, trying not to trod on anyone, he stretched out in a free spot at the top, between two grey crones wrapped in rags, who greeted every new arrival with a menacing grunt. He couldn't sleep. The damp pour of a fine misty rain stroked his face, soaking his clothes with a sharp, slick wetness. The rain and sweat in his rags gave off a musty, acidic smell. The stone pillow of the spittle-covered stair jabbed his head. The sharp edges of the steps cut into his ribs, splitting his body into separate pieces that writhed in feverish insomnia, like the segments of a severed worm. The lucky wretches at the bottom, fortunate to have reserved their places by the gate in advance, snored in a wide register of stifled breaths. Pierre, too, was gradually overcome by a heavy, delirious half-sleep. He dreamed he was lying on no ordinary stairway, but on an escalator, which was ascending with a rattle. From the yawning chasm of the earth, the open moor of the metro, a never-ending iron accordion of moving stairs climbed upward in a hollow and rhythmic rumble. One after another, more and more steps clattered into sight, blocked by the row of ragged, helpless bodies. The summit of the stairs where Pierre lay was somewhere far in the clouds. 
Down below, many-eyed Paris shouted out into the soulless silence of the night with its billion lights. The stairs clanged in time as they rose higher. Pierre was overwhelmed by the cosmic vacuum of interplanetary infinity, the blinking of the stars, the limitless hush of space. The escalator flowed from the bleak abyss of the open street into the gaping abyss of the heavens, carrying along a black mass of wretched slumbering bodies. Yeah, I find it really interesting to hear that he, you know, supposedly found communism properly through through poverty. And it seems like his writing of Pierre, the first main character we meet, who, I must say, I kind of assumed was going to be the main character for the entire book, and that wasn't to be. Um, yeah, he certainly writes very sympathetically of his plight. And there's um, a dream or a feverish quality to his his descent very, very quickly from this precarious worker into a destitute and starving man on the on the streets of Paris. It feels, I mean, and again, very much in, in the kind of like futurist way of writing, the days blend into the nights and then into, back into days again and the, the description, the city itself kind of becomes this strange beast which changes as the as the sun rises and sets and things become completely almost overwhelming and and enveloping pierre is a is a factory worker effectively and he hears that because of economic conditions the factory workers might be laid off and that they're politically active and most likely to be first and so he keeps his head down but loses his job anyway and then uh, very rapidly uh, loses his girlfriend and loses his flat finds himself on the street going from place to place amongst this underclass in Paris who are huddled each night for the bit of warmth that might come out of the subway or uh, helping to stack vegetables at the market in exchange for a thin sort of onion soup and this to me felt felt very realistic I don't I don't know if uh, Yashensky had quite encountered that level of hardship but especially the elements where he starts to talk about Pierre's hunger you know there's a there's something to the the writing here where there's this constant play between the mechanical coldness of the city and then something extremely physical and animal and again this this is slightly hackneyed imagery but the uh, the cars and the trams in paris get described as animals and beasts but it's really pierre's psychological and physical torment which for me really comes to the fore but yeah he certainly he talks about hunger in a way that's embodied completely separately from him as almost having its own consciousness and something that he can kind of recognize and control there's a there's a moment here just at the beginning of the fourth chapter of the first section uh it says for many days he'd been carrying a greedy sucking hunger in his belly as a mother does a fetus <laughs> kind of strange it almost feels like something from a david cronenberg film like this complete change you know not not the the wonderful gift of life that you might have from a from a baby inside you but in fact this parasitic succubus or something i don't know that's that's uh in inside uh gnawing away at you that you you just can't get rid of and that it feels like it's written by someone that really has experienced this this kind of hunger whether or not that's true i don't know i loved this first section actually it's my favorite part of the book uh, by quite a long way and really to do with the richness of the language in it yeah, it sort of struck me that the way that the city is described through the miasma of his delirium is is so well done. At a certain point when it just it just starts to, to rain, I'll read this little passage that I really liked. His thoughts swirled as tangled and twisted as the alleyways down which he drifted. Rain started to pour in the evening, and under the sluicing streams of the water, the hard contours of objects rippled gently, sinking into the depths as if immersed in a swift transparent current. Dusk fell. The lanterns were lit and splattered colourless stains on the inky surface of the night, neither soaking into it nor illuminating it. An algae of shadows, the fantastical fauna of the bottomless depths populating the riverbed of the street. 
the precipitous banks, full of the phosphorescent magical grottoes of jeweller's windows, where virgin pearls the size of peas, shucked from their shells, slumbered on suede rocks, stretched upward, their perpendicular walls vainly groping for the surface. Even in this little sort of description of just a rain, the rain-soaked streets, you know, there's a sense that his consciousness is being submerged and kind of unhinged due to due to his hunger. The city seems to take on its own sort of dissociated aura. You know, there's lots of sort of defamiliarization of the city as it becomes a more and more alienating place for for Pierre to live in. And I think that sort of mirrors something that you're saying about about the hunger, how it becomes, how it's almost this sort of separate entity kind of sucking the life out of him. And I really like the way the, the prose mirrors that. I was actually reminded quite a lot of the Knut Hampson book, Rob Hunger. Do you, do you know it? I don't know it, but it has, it's been brought up in relation to this book. For me. Oh, have you seen? Have people made that connection? No, it's actually so. So uh, my girlfriend Emmy, who recommended the book, was talking about, I guess, this this exact comparison and saying, I don't know the 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 kind of alienation of extreme hunger, the way that the city around you becomes completely changed and you're incredibly alienated from it by this very sudden shift in your uh in your social position that suddenly you're wandering around looking for food and and the city itself becomes an incredibly hostile place that i guess just completely stops making sense what i'm about to say might be missing yashinsky's point and you know because i don't really think that was the intent of this of this novel which maybe has sort of more didactic designs but it feels to me as if there's a sort of masterpiece of a of a modernist novella sort of lost here by the fact that it's embedded within this larger whole i find myself sort of imagining what might have happened to a text like this had it been published as a sort of standalone book you know this first section it can almost be read that way i think what do you think of that rob is that is that doing is that doing a, the book a disservice? No, not at all. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I do think there's this sense of these sections being written very much it kind of through the persona of the character. And there seems to almost this like really, really rich, beautifully described alienation of the of the city. But there's also a certain romance to Pierre as well. You know, he's really spends his time either looking for food or, or looking for the lost love. And the the ending to this section when, I guess, yeah, Pierre becomes alienated even from us because he stops being referred to by his first name and just becomes the red-haired man. He is then responsible for the uh, for the plague. He steals a vial of cholera, is that right? Yeah, it is cholera. And puts it into Paris's water system. But one of the first victims is his uh, lost love, Jeanette, who he spent however many previous pages looking for he suddenly sees her in a horrible fit clearly about to die and and that's kind of where we where we leave him and yeah i i absolutely agree that it'd be rather tragic uh and quite a brutal short story but it would it would definitely work i think so i think there's like a real real tension in the book between two different ideas of the novel or two different ideas of literature you know there's the idea of it as an artistic statement and the idea of it as a political tool and those two things don't need don't necessarily need to be conflicting but they've it feels that way to me in this book i think you can sort of see that transition in yashensky almost occurring on the page in the second edition of this book the plot was changed quite considerably. It's no longer Pierre that, that actually causes the outbreak of the plague. It's changed into the the French state being responsible for it, which maybe simplifies things politically a little bit. But I think it's far less interesting than the sort of mental leap that we have to make as readers between seeing Pierre as someone sympathetic and and also the perpetrator of this great catastrophic act for me the the huge strength of this book is there's there's no out and out evil none of the characters become caricatures like each each one of them no matter how uh awful their deeds is is given some 
very human uh, sort of like rectifying characteristic is was the was the change do you know was the change made in that polish tradition when he'd left when he'd been expelled from france yeah yeah i think he was expelled in 1929 after its publication almost almost directly because then i suppose perhaps the change also reflects a, a certain desire on on his part to kind of get back at the french state for for uh, expelling him that's true yeah yeah and also have quite a clear political narrative for his circumstances in 1934 you know he's in he's in russia by that point or in the ussr this constant struggle almost within the book to decide between kind of like an artistic or a political aim and and the fact that these two aspects are never really they never really come together into a coherent whole The, the second section moves to this character, Pan Xiangui. The the style becomes very polemic, and this was I felt was the weakest part of the book. Is the point when I actually started to drift and and maybe flick the pages, uh, not reading quite so deeply. Oh, I re- I really disagree with that. It's like a little embedded bildungsroman, you know. Yeah, it's slightly refreshing in its style in relation to this very dense psychedelic initial section i think it's sort of breezy <laughs> i know it's got quite dark subject matter but it's it sort of breezes along in quite a pleasant way i thought but what didn't you like about it rob perhaps it was just towards the end i think as we move across and this is probably a point to talk about quite how sudden that break is it's not really signposted in any way. This isn't a character that appears anywhere else. We literally end with Pierre being bottled to death by the crowd having told them that he was responsible for the plague. And all of a sudden, we're just in this new this new world or this new following this new character. And it seemed to me like a very filmic move. Um, Almost a pan, if you will, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Oh, but but maybe even a harder cut than a pan. There's a there's a pan before as we as we lose as we lose sight of Pierre, as he uh, becomes the red-haired man and and you know his his corpse is destroyed by the angry citizens of Paris and then there's like a very hard cut and I know in the translator's introduction which weirdly comes at the end of well in my edition comes at the end of the book talks about the influence of Eisenstein, which I think is is really important in the construction of the book things like montage theory and this idea of having very hard cuts to bring about a certain a certain tension or a certain meaning i think is exactly what's what's going on here there's this lovely quote that says uh, if the miles of film of the average human life could for once be played in reverse the eye like an all-seeing probe plunged into the fathomless stream of human consciousness would hit upon a point where somewhere deep down a hard bedrock a fact an event an image an undefined and flickering sensation. It would be tattered and faded, yet inflected with such a strange hue that the current of time flowing through one's life would absorb its indefinable colour for good. And so we're being set up to understand that there's there's something that's happened in Pan's life which is going to explain for us the actions of this particular character. And certainly some of the the, the the way their language becomes, as you say, yeah, far far less psychedelic and uh, far less futurist. For me, that reflected this strange coldness of this character. And it seems perhaps that Yashinsky is, is suggesting that it has a psychological bedrock. But I was very interested in the idea of the, the film, the miles of film of the average human life. So it seems to me that that's a way of thinking about storytelling or life in general that is extremely filmic even at this point in the in the 30s i saw the influence of film more to do with little motifs you know like the cyclical nature of history being almost like a projector's reel or something like that there's there's actually a a section from the very beginning of the book describing pierre and jeanette walking along down the down the streets and it says they walked slowly arm in arm intermingling with that random and unsynchronized throng of extras cast every evening by europe's rickety film projector onto the screen of 
Paris's boulevards. And just like a film being kind of replayed, that, that very passage reoccurs almost verbatim towards the end. Did you notice that, Rob? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's really interesting. I thought we were actually going to enter this circular loop, but in fact, we just lose it again. And I, I, yeah, I would definitely agree. That's an incredibly filmic moment that you, you suddenly see this glimpse of what you've seen before. And there is literally a kind of reproduction, this idea of reproduction that perhaps is brought about by... Uh, film and photography and then and then just kind of disappears fades fades away into the background in this really interesting book that nina kolesnikov book uh this is a description of how the russian section the section with solomine is instructed almost like a film treatment or something without full sentences but just a sort of precy of of his biography you know uh, student years and falls in love yeah exactly as you say like a treatment or um yeah, this, this kind of list of actions for, put down that will be fleshed out in camera. In this section with Pan Zhangkui, he's set up to be quite a, quite a sympathetic character, I think. I mean, definitely cold, as you describe him. But, you know, he falls in love and he, he witnesses his sort of romantic interest she's raped by by her boss and eventually kind of commits suicide it's quite it's quite gruesome i don't know maybe maybe we're intended to sense that that's the kind of final thread of of humanity for for this for this character but when he reappears in the novel later he's completely transformed isn't he it feels like yashinsky stops short of of saying that he's some kind of dictator or or this kind of like maoist figure but yeah he's he's certainly cold and and slightly scientific in his dealings so i guess this section is quite long and you know again this could, this could almost be its own short story but then it's definitely used as a vehicle to introduce the uh slow fragmenting of paris so is it am i right in thinking that the first section to to break away is this kind of group of, of Chinese, although it seems Pan-Asian because we meet this Japanese character as well. Yeah, this is the first one we read about. Yeah, on July 30, a radio station broadcast some incredible news. During the previous night, the yellow-skinned inhabitants of the Latin Quarter had staged a coup. All the white inhabitants had been pushed to the right bank of the Seine, and the Latin Quarter had been declared an autonomous Chinese republic. We mentioned before that... Uh, that perhaps that it's not race. I, d- I don't consider this um, this passage to be racist in any sense. It's sort of perhaps yeah. it's very very outdated in its terminology. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. There is an awful lot of mentions of yellow skin, but also just yellow as an adjective in general yeah. throughout this section, which is starts to I think to to modern ears starts to feel a bit odd. <laughs> um, but the rest of it is very sympathetic, and it's you know in no way. Uh, patronizing i don't think no and the, it's the it's the sort of white europeans that are the antagonists in this in this section as well the the death of chen his his lover it feels like in comparison to the the death of Jeanette and the death of pierre this constant i don't mean tension in in as much of it's like a narrative tension but something unresolved for yetinsky himself where there seems to be a kind of like romantic idea, this kind of like individual emotional torment, which we which we see in Solomon and other points in the the later kind of like American businessman that we meet, David Lingsley. So that contrasted with this idea that you would sacrifice this emotional, yeah, individual, whatever, for ideological reasons or or for for the good of a greater cause and and pan seems like a very good perhaps the the definition of that and it's something that doesn't feel very resolved i don't feel that yashinsky himself has fallen on either either side of that debate it feels like he has a lot of sympathy with both sides and that that kind of ambiguity makes the book a lot more interesting that is uh, really fascinating actually that sort of interplay between the individual and the collective but it's my my feeling that this book is sort of unabashedly a sort of public statement you know it even has the declamatory rhythms of public address in its dna somehow although it might be driven by yashinsky's personal experiences living in paris to some degree perhaps in that first section it never feels particularly 
be intimate. It seems to be intended in its scope to reach a, a mass audience and sort of concerns itself with the mass. The narrative lens sort of widens progressively as the book goes on you know, beginning with this single worker and then gradually moving outwards to discuss whole communities there's always a central figure but they feel much more representative of holes than perhaps pierre does on his own and the book seems to want to encompass grand historical gestures i guess it seems to have worked you know the first printing of the book in the ussr of quite a large print run of 140,000 copies sold out in a matter of days and it had to be reprinted on a larger scale as soren gauger the the translator tells us in the afterword so it does seem to have had that very public impact but also i think that maybe there's something about futurism that uh, encompasses that as part of its aesthetic i was looking at some Futurist manifestos, there's one by Stanislav Przebyszewski, who's not particularly known as a futurist. I've read one of his books and it's much more in a sort of decadent vein, but yeah, there's this manifesto, The Primitivists to the Nations of the World and to Poland, published in 1920, and it contains this line, Art is only that which gives health and laughter. The essence of art is manifested in a circus spectacle for huge crowds of people. And I think that, well, there's certainly humour in this book, you know, we've been talking about it in quite serious terms, but there's a lot of humour blended with this quite didactic political seriousness but that mode of public address is deeply embedded in this book especially as we get to the point when Paris fragments and forms all these smaller states within Paris the Jewish state and the Anglo-American state the Imperial Russia state and the Bolshevik state I would absolutely agree that there's that kind of motive and a certain idea of speaking to the public and even, even the way that those characters become very representative feels like quite a sort of like patrician idea that you're you're kind of like teaching or there's a there's an almost scholarly aspect i i was reading this and as it went from bit to bit it made me feel like yashinsky must have actually done quite a lot of research because each section feels quite realistic as we move from the uh, section in china which returns to paris and then we move to the quite short section about Rabbi Elisa Benzvi. It's very, very sympathetic in in the level of detail that describes the life of this rabbi and the toll on the Jewish community that the plague is is having. So yeah, in one way it feels very scholarly and and kind of informative to the masses. But there's also this other weird thing that seems to be going on. This weird human humanism which doesn't seem to sit with that, which again is linked with the sympathetic level of detail that is is given to each of these characters do you feel that they are archetypes well this is this is i guess kind of part of the tension it sort of seems to be both that there's points when yeah they absolutely are representative of certain things and and it's really interesting you know in the jewish section that essentially doesn't seem to be super critical of the role that religion can play in a kind of communist way so the way it brings people together and and constructs a certain communal social meaning but equally we really see the internal torment of the rabbi when he realizes that the people are looking at looking to him to be able to do something because he you know communes with god and that he can somehow save them or spare them in a particularly biblical way from this plague and he realizes that he's not going to be able to so yeah you have you have both you have this real human torment and that seems to be the same for david lingsley for uh solomon certainly for pierre as well for pierre yeah absolutely I, i was thinking of this passage from the start of the book that really allies pierre to his social class and sort of makes him just one of many on the first page i think is this passage when you came to work in the morning and stood at your workstation you couldn't know for certain if you wouldn't be the next to go 400 agitated pairs of eyes like dogs snuffling the ground surreptitiously followed every step of the foreman's heavy feet as they moved slowly deliberately as it were pacing between the workstations and tried to avoid meeting his gaze as it slithered across all their faces hunched over their machines as if wanting to become even smaller, greyer, more imperceptible. Four hundred workers ravelled out the seconds on their smoking machines in a feverish race of fingers, tangled and hoarse from silently screaming, that seemed to mutter, I'm the fastest, don't pick me, not me. 
immediately we have Pierre as the archetype, you know, the dutiful worker just trying to get by, and he's placed amongst his social class, but at the same time, we're taken very deep into his individual plight. But he, the whole time, is playing a kind of political purpose, I sense, for Yashensky. The idea that it's his sort of disenfranchisement, the failure of the state to care for for him, the loss of his job due to an economic crisis that sends him in spiraling into this delirium and paranoia and, and, you know, causes him to become the perpetrator of this great catastrophe. Although he's sort of humanized and quite a fleshed out and rounded character, he still belongs to the class of a tool for Yashensky to, to make a didactic political point I think. There's many characters that are used as a kind of like mouthpiece and there's points when it, it really descends into outright polemic I think also uh, there's the bit with Solomon's brother where he he suddenly meets him and, and he extols the, the virtues of Soviet Russia. He says, To feel you're the core of a marvellous human avalanche that is torn free and is flying into the future. Yet it smothers you like snow in a churning grainy mass. You're its heart, a cell in its bloodstream, slipping from vein to vein. What what saves this from falling into just being out, outwardly polemic is that actually really Captain Solomon is, is awful. You know, you meet him and he has a, a Jewish prisoner who and he, he's extremely anti-semitic and he sort of seems to suggest to the, the this man that he's going to let him free lets him run to the other side of the square and shoots him to show off his marksmanship and it you know it's just just awful but actually then when we follow him further as a character we realize that he has this also this inner turmoil and he's been ground down so yeah i mean perhaps perhaps the two things aren't aren't necessarily incompatible i suppose there's a there's a kind of universal humanism which which is i guess at the heart of a certain socialist marxist politics but he does seem very very specifically wary and i guess this is one of the big things that you can take from the book but very wary of groups closing in on themselves separating themselves from others whether that is along religious lines or national lines or it was quite an interesting bit which possibly is a bit unfair but i suppose it's an, an attempt at, at satire but when it talks about the african republic and it says that any white person caught in the african republic was beheaded by the africans with ceremonies borrowed from the Ku klux klan yeah and it yeah, seems yeah. to be it's this, this satirical way of saying that actually was there to be this kind of reverse racism uh, which is obviously very complicated to talk about but he seems to be saying that that would be as problematic he seems to be pushing pushing for something far more humanist or far more universal you just mentioned that idea of not being entirely separatist or sectarian which each of these different divisions of the quarters of Paris is but do you think it's sort of sufficiently described by Yashensky how the triumphant utopian proletarian commune that's formed after the sort of dust of the catastrophe has settled do you think it's sort of sufficiently described how this is different why it is a success yeah it's a it's a weakness of the book that at that point it feels like the political aim of the book starts to overtake some of the quite well considered social criticism and it imagines this yeah as you say utopian society the commune itself believes it's necessary to cut themselves off because they'll be crushed i think we have the same edition but i was admiring throughout there's these these really beautiful intaglio prints i can't tell exactly if they're modern or modern or old and there's these these sections which look like the stages of of growing bacteria or some kind of growing culture on a petri dish Uh, i don't think they actually are but yeah it made me think that perhaps that was included to complement this political idea, which seems to be a book that there needs to be some kind of like uh, <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? Nuclei. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something, something kind of like protected and separated out. This kind of like in vitro idea of nurturing this initial commune, which can then be released into the world in much the way, same way that the bacteria is. That there's a there's a kind of mirror. Like Paris itself needs to be purged first, and then this commune can spring up in its place. It does start to not hold with what it feels like the the political views are in the earlier part of the book each of these divisions sort of fails for for different reasons sometimes it's sort of vengeance or brutality or pride or being too scientific or clinical in the in the 
case of the Chinese Republic. But the curious thing for me is that for, for a writer with these strong communist ideals, Yashensky spends very little time on the utopian side of the argument, you know? We see Paris devolve under these sort of catastrophic circumstances, but our narrative gaze is averted while the commune, this triumphant commune, is built at the end. And there does seem to be this strange catastrophism or... Yeah, this idea, this kind of like certain like Marxist scientific idea that inevitably capitalism will collapse. There'll be a proletarian revolution because of the inherent contradictions within capitalism and that there just needs to be this kind of like incubated commune which is kept safe and protected and allowed to grow as much as it can. And that will then be, yeah, this this kernel, this nuclei for a far larger revolution. But exactly as you say, it's never it's never clear, and it doesn't spend enough time. You know, the plague just is the trigger for huge social upheaval, but the groundwork is already there. It's just that when pushed to the extremes, these ruptures become untenable and and suddenly these splits occur and why doesn't that happen in the commune as it as it happens in in Paris seemingly operates under similarly extreme circumstances and why why does this not happen perhaps this is very easy to say with the benefit of hindsight knowing what happens <laughs> after yeah. Yashinsky's written this book The dun London fog slowly crept across Europe, spreading its vapours of damp, toxic gases. During those years, scholars noted a marked change in the European climate. In the winter, a slushy snow covered Nice, and the astonished palm trees, their leaves undulating under the frost like odd, flat-chested skirt suits, swayed a phantom tango. In London there was fog as always, the lampposts burned in the foggy daylight, and bristling figures flitted through the milky gelatinous haze, blind submarines with strangely short periscopes. Londoners must have sponges for lungs, to soak up the fog and breathe it out like factory smoke through pointy-faced chimneys. In the noon fog, the pointy faces of the chimneys turned skyward and howled like dogs sniffing a corpse. Then millions of human sponges poured out of the factories, the offices and the government buildings to suck in the fog and carry it back to the six-story anthills of their offices. Bloated ships roared into the coal-black ports daily always at the same time, and on these ships soldiers, civil servants and ordinary citizens of the British Empire floated off to their dominions, so that there, under the sweltering skies of India, they could exhale a bit of the fog that spreads across their land in a leaden vapour. But for the sun-scorched Hindus, the London fog is more toxic than poison gas. That summer, a fine prickly rain fell incessantly in Europe, and in August, fog swam in from the shores of Brittany. The fog pulled a heavy veil over the channel, hugged the green coastline of Normandy, and pushed further inland, wrapping objects and cities in its soft grey suede. The fuzzy grey puffs crawled through the valleys like smoke. Scientists predicted a damp autumn and ended their prophecies there, unlike the peasants, who recalled that smoke clings to the ground before a storm, and began muttering of future calamities. In the channel, steamships blundering in the fog hailed one another with a constant scream of sirens. Well, what I was left with as a reader was not a sense of triumph, but because the book has this sort of apocalyptic tone and so much more of its energy is, is dedicated to this idea of catastrophism, that's the kind of emotion that you're left with. Almost a kind of nihilism that it's, it's simply in the nature of humanity, whatever creed, to devolve, turn against one another, prey upon one another. You know, there's this sort of sense of ending that is floating around in the in the culture of this period after the first world war you have spengler's the decline of the west in 1918 and then yates's poem the second coming you know that rob turning and turning in the widening gaia the falcon uh, yeah. the falconer but i think in the in the polish case it's really significant, this idea of catastrophism i think in polish literary histories and so on there are whole groups of writers 
grouped around this idea, you know, like Josef Tachovic and later Tadeusz Geitzer. There's also from a very from around this period that Jasinski's novel was published in. There's another by Witkatze or Stanisław Witkiewicz. His novel Insatiability depicts a, a future in which Poland is sort of overrun by Mongol hordes. And I think maybe in the Polish case it could be because of, maybe this is overly simplistic, but the deeply unstable nature of the state. You know, the borders in Eastern Europe constantly shifting at this period. And there are echoes, I think, of the Polish-Soviet war in 1920 in this novel during the sort of fallout of the plague outside, you know, when we get this big description of the geopolitical consequences and um, Poland forms an allegiance with the Ukraine to attack Russia. That's right, isn't it, Rob, in, in the novel? Yes. Which echoes almost directly what happened in the Polish-Soviet war. The Bolsheviks marched all the way in almost to Warsaw and were pushed back by Polish forces. You know, history is sort of on Poland's doorstep very much and it seems quite crucial in a way that it might not elsewhere, I don't know. At a certain macro level, again, to bring in the kind of filmic trope, but as Yasinski zooms out and we, yeah, we do suddenly get this geo geopolitical scope of the book at the very end, it feels like he can sort of be quite optimistic, but it never feels entirely convincing because at the micro level, there's a real catastrophism there's a there's a humanism to Yashinsky's writing and, and his sympathy with the characters, but equally I'm not sure he has an entirely humanist view of humans as a whole. When you get to the end, the overriding feeling definitely is is of catastrophe. So it's really interesting to hear uh, and to think about the possible kind of like Polish very specifically Polish causes of it. And it's really interesting, I suppose, to think about in terms of what happens in Yasinski's life when he then moves to the USSR. So after the publication of this novel, Yasinski's life eventually takes quite a tragic turn. And in 1937, he's uh, arrested uh, by the Soviets and accused of encouraging nationalism and deviating from the party line. And he's held in Boturka prison, in Moscow, but it's not apparently not too worried because he believes that sooner or later the motherland will notice her terrible mistake and uh, release him, but this never happens. And he's found guilty and sentenced to exile in Siberia. Actually, it was believed for a long time that he died in transport, I think, but it's now known that he was executed in that prison on September the 17th, 1938. In the afterword to our edition, of I Burn Paris contains some quite gruesome details from Yashensky's letters written directly to Stalin during his captivity in which he describes being tortured, uh, having his teeth kicked in and his fingernails pulled out. Maybe I'll just end with uh, one of his final poems written from prison. He says, I don't blame you, my motherland, for anything. I know that only by losing faith in your sons could you have believed such heresy and broken my song like a sword. But you, my song, forged the thunders in your smithy. Don't weep that we have to lie in this kennel. Our fame is shameful, but sooner or later, the motherland will notice a terrible mistake. So, you know, he remained a believer right to the end. It feels like... To the end, he, he remains the author of the second part of the book. But what's borne out by his particular fate, and then also a certain historical fate that we're unfortunately still living very much through, is that really the um, the author of the of the first two sections may may have been slightly more correct. And it's what I guess for me makes this book still so interesting is that it's it's really not describing something particularly historical the um, the breakup of of Paris this kind of microcosm into like increasing nationalism and uh, these groups bound by ideology or religion or, or race is definitely it feels like something we're we're seeing rear its head again yeah more more prevalent than than ever in in my lifetime and it certainly made it very poignant reading it now shall i ask you traditionally the final question would you recommend this book to people rob yeah definitely i mean yeah we we've talked about it very seriously but there are some um 
there are some very funny sections. I particularly like the bit, the kind of novel within the novel, where it talks briefly about the uh, the story of the Blue Republic, which is the, the mini state comprised entirely of policemen who decide yeah. to make <laughs> blonde hair, bl- decide to make blonde hair illegal so that they have something to do. There's this great moment. It says, I'm going to read a quick quote, where it just says, we need a new definition of lawbreaking because without said lawbreakers, the police were starting to doubt their reality. <laughs> and it is really shot through with these amazing moments of dark humour. So it's very, yeah, so it's great. It's, it's actually quite good fun to read and, and quite easy, but it feels like a very important book to read at the moment. The perils of, of what can happen as these groups become more and more insular, whether or not someone agrees with the, the kind of communist sentiment in the end of the book it's certainly a, a stark warning so yeah i would, I would recommend it on on both levels on an ideological level and and on the narrative level what about you sam yeah you know most polls that i've spoken to even though i think this has quite classic status uh haven't actually read this book and i oh, think okay. it might be quite an important book like you say to read at the moment for my own particular interests i would recommend it on the strength of the first section as well which i i just love aesthetically it's it's quite unique lots of this kind of language language we see in poetry and in perhaps italian futurism you know i was very much reminded of marinetti's manifesto you know the little tale that precedes the numbered points of the of the manifesto that's the kind of closest analog i can muster but it really is quite special so purely on the strength of that i will be recommending it to people We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Sherd's Podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.